You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Tommy Ullinen, the Chief Product Officer at Relic Solutions. If you are going to be the first employee of a company or, or even a kind of certain country, or if you're going to be the first customer of that company in that country, it calls for a big different character or personality than those who then join when there's hundreds of customers or thousands of people already. So that's very much visible in both the people who've been with us a long time, but also those first early customers. Hi there, welcome back to the podcast. And this time we're going to talk about product and especially how product is affected when you work with B2B enterprise customers. Yeah, definitely. And I think all product owners out there and CPOs and CTOs working for these kinds of solutions in general, they need a shout out. Great products make the, make the world run here. Like, But I, I think what's what's particularly interesting for me to hear in this one is like, what is it that's unique in building and selling enterprise products? What is the big challenge that you might not see in call it SMB type of, of setups? I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what Tom is going to talk about. Yeah, and I think this is something that maybe you don't hear about that often. You often hear about these uh, PLG companies that have, uh, they have you know, self-onboarding, they move really fast and uh, they can, yeah, they scale really fast and so on. And it's a little bit uh, a different beast when you work with these super big companies. And this is a company that uh, from a Nordic perspective is really, really big, but they have high ambitions. So uh, join us for this interview. Today we are joined by Tommy Ullinen, the Chief Product Officer at Relex Solution. So uh, welcome, Tommy. Thanks, Thomas. Nice to be here. It's great to have you with us here, Tommy. So uh, tell us a little bit here on this fine Friday morning, like who is Tommy? Yeah, so my background is pretty much equal to, to Relex background. So I, I studied in Helsinki Technical University and then I actually had a chance to join either Nokia in 2006 when they were fairly big for a summer training or this new startup that basically had no office almost. Wow, you went against the stream. Like ev- everybody in Finland that we've spoken to has at some point in their career spent some time at Nokia, but you're the exception to the rule. Wow, good for you. Even a bit older people like me, I think that applies, but then it starts to be a bit different at my generation and younger because they, they started to go on decline. But yeah, you have a huge amount of people in, in this sector that has some background with Nokia. I just thought it was much more exciting to go for a company that first thing you need to do is to buy your own laptop and then next thing is to kind of figure out what you need to do then <laughs> then go for a big corporation and I think I've since learned that that was that that is really something I enjoy much more and what did those early days look like for you when you got your laptop and yeah you got going I think the first task was to build a user guide for our then first product and then do a lot of kind of software user testing that does it work and are there corner cases where it doesn't work and things like that. 
Yeah. Okay. So what what was your like official role? Like when you interviewed, what did you interview for? What did the the, the founding team tell you? Like this is what you're going to do, Tommy here. I don't think official role is something. That <laughs> <laughs> All right, but moving forward a little bit. So so you did the, the the manual user testing and so on. So moving forward a year or so, what how had that developed then? But throughout my studies, I did we did also kind of consulting and also the simulation analysis that was. That went nicely with my studies, so I think I did almost all the projects that you had to do for the uni studies. I did them for Relax as part of the part of the work. And how long time did you study and work at Relax, sort of that was simultaneously? Three years, two and a half years, something like that. Wow! And after that, when you're ready with your studies, was it you know were you convinced that Relax were the right place for you to to uh, continue or now you were done with the studies, you had this side job, and then maybe, yeah, there was something else that you wanted to do. At that point, yes, yeah, still very much so. So I spent two years implementing Relax solutions to the, at that point, already quite big Finnish customers, but still still only in Finland. But but after two years, I I had never seen any other real company. So I, I, I actually left for a year to go to the other side of the table to work in grocery retail in Finland. But... And I enjoyed that too, but then just feel like my, my heart never left. And then the guys asked me back to move to UK. So, so I came back and I, it's nice to see nowadays that we have, we discussed that we should form a club of kind of people who've returned to relax because there are some <laughs> of people already. So there are the average age is young. Many, for many people, it's the first company they join. And then it's quite natural that you want to see something else. But then it's also quite natural to find out that it's not necessarily better. Right. And then, then, they, then they return fairly soon or, or a bit later. Once you go relax, you never go back, I suppose. Well, that's the aim, of course. But you go back. <laughs> or, or, or you go back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You go back. <laughs> but but c- can you tell us something about your adventure in the UK? How was that like? Were you the only one moving over? And uh, how long did you stay? What happened in that market? Yeah, that's of course because I was an engineer never worked in English and never sold anything so it felt natural to move to UK to start selling <laughs> selling a product of a company of, at the time less than 30 people so first 18 months it was just me and then during that time we accidentally found a couple of customers and so I kind of run the process sales process for those and pretty much implemented the first one too and then when we started to see that okay there's some business here then we hired a few local people and it, it made a difference especially in the sales side that you have local local people who know some people and know the market and know which football club to vote for in each each conversation <laughs> and so on so it, it, then the second 18 months i was there roughly three years in total so that was then more about kind of hiring the first few people who are still all with us which is it's extremely nice to see and then kind of making sure that we continue growing and scaling all right so so two more questions here before we go on and talk about the company so how long did you spend in the uk so that was three years in total all right and what can you say about your current role uh, what does that look like so currently i'm chief product officer and more or less the same role i've had now since i returned from uk 2015 but when i returned from uk we did not have a product function and i was more or less tasked to build one and now it's 200 people, so you cannot really say it's the same role. It's been 
kind of every year figuring out that, okay, what do we need to do this year and what is the next problem to solve and how to scale. But more or less, product has been the topic for the last eight, eight years. Awesome. Hey, tell us a little bit about uh, Relics. Like, what are you guys all about? Like, what, what, what do you do and for who do you do that? Yeah, so we, where we started from was purely supply chain planning, forecasting, automated replenishment, inventory management uh, for retail, wholesale, manufacturing, consumer packages companies. And, and over the years, we've expanded to cover a broader broader set of planning planning tools for, for the retail value chain. So how do you, starting from the forecast, that what's the, what are the consumers going to buy? And then based on that, making decisions like how much to order, how much stock to hold, what products to put in assortment, how to merchandise them in the store. So building planograms and floor plans, what products to promote, how to, how much labor you need to do all that work. So, right. In a way, we, we, we call it unified retail planning. So it's sort of the, the planning layer of for retail and retail value chain. Right. And do you approach all types of uh, retailers as long as they are of a certain size or how does that work? Uh, more or less. The, the biggest exception is fashion, which tends to operate very differently. So they that's more about trying to come up with what's going to be the next big thing in next season, ordering that one year in advance and then getting rid of what you ordered a year ago. Whereas the rest of retail is a bit more continuous, that continuous forecast and replenishment. And the logic is quite different. So we, we have some fashion customers, but that's not a focus area. Everything else is. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I know that uh, we've had... Uh two of your founders participate in some of our other shows and events and so on. So we know you guys rather well here. And it's like, it's an amazing Finnish startup story. And you, you guys even got an award from the Finnish export minister for being so amazing. But let's put some numbers on this here. Like, how big are you guys today, Tom, in terms of what is your ARR and how fast are you growing? Well, ARR-wise, I think Johanna said early in the year that it's north of 100 million and, and we've kept growing ever since. Right. As of figures today, last year, we the revenues for ELS was 130, a bit over 130 million euros. And of course, we're expecting to continue growing this year. So, Does that make you the largest SaaS company in Finland? That's a bit difficult to say. I would say there's the one maybe bigger is Bossware, which is Bassware, which is much older company, and they've been going through a transformation to SaaS. But I would expect that if we're not bigger this year than next year, we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. And how, how many customers do you guys have today around the world? It is somewhere around 400. And and the thing is that it took us maybe 10 years to kind of steadily grow the ladders from a bit smaller customers all the way to the biggest retailers in the world and now we now we are the average sizes of course nowadays much much bigger we have something around six out of top 15 retailers of the world as customers and and we're looking to get the rest of course in due course and and, and where what are the core markets for you like these these 400 customers where do we predominantly find them us is, is already biggest market since we we went there some seven years ago, I think, and it's been a good good start. But of course, it's it's a bigger market than Europe in total, so there's still much room to grow. Did you did you use the same winning concept there to send a Finnish engineer to run sales? Yes, 
<laughs> it, it, it's worked quite well. Listen and learn, people. Listen and learn. Nikki, one of the founders, spent a couple of years there and got the door opened. Engineers are all about sales. I like that. I like that. So t- tell us a little bit uh, from your own perspective. We, we know Relics has, has raised you know, a decent amount of funds. Maybe you can share you know, how much that is. And we'd also like to, to know, as the first hire an employee, how much of a stake do you have in this operation? Yeah, the last last fundraise we did was early early this year, where Blackstone joined us as investor. They we raised 500 million, and company was valued at five billion. That's the latest on that, and so we now have three three investors in total. Right, three main investors, and then the founders still have big, big stakes. Yeah. All right. So uh, we have reached the segment where we go into the main topic. And I mean, you're an example of a SaaS company working with huge enterprise companies. And we would like to talk about how this affects the product organization. And I mean, is, um, is there a playbook uh, in this situation when you work with these uh, enterprise uh, companies? But, but first, I think it's important if you just could give us your definition of a B2B enterprise product. What would that be? Yeah, I think for, for me, it's, it's the fact that what we sell is it's, it's big. The ticket size is big. So customers may pay it relative to their size, of course, but all of them, it's meaningful money. So they spend a lot of time in the purchasing process. It's a big decision for them. Uh, the implementations can take even thousands of days nowadays across multiple years because it's so complex and phased out. And, and it's also... In our case, it's business critical for the customer. So they are really careful on selecting it and making sure that whatever happens there, it's, it's stable and runs smoothly. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And knowing all of this, what you just mentioned here, like what does that actually do to the internal product team? Like how, how does the product team needs to be structured in order to, to tackle this, these specific characteristics? Yeah, I think the first thing is that product in this kind of setup is not just the technical product, but the whole package. So in a way, if you think of the sales phase, actually the technical product plays a minor role because we're not selling to the users. We are selling to the director, VP, C-level people who are never going to use or almost never going to see the product even. Mm. Of course, there's demos and stuff like that, but some some companies out there don't even show the real product. They, they, you can mock it up or use some kind of wireframes to do the demo. So finally, the product technically plays a small role in the sales cycle, but where it, of course, comes into play is that having happy customers and references is very important and always been our biggest strength. Mm. And you can't have that unless the users and the customers are happy and get results. So, I mean, to to your original question, I mean, the, the product is everything from the kind of how you how you pitch it, how you position it, how you implement it all the way down to what the technically the product is and does. Mm. And, and how, that, how that then impacts the product teams. Of course, we need to have people who look after all those things. So what I've talked to, maybe, maybe smaller SaaS companies tends to be the founders and slash people who sell it in the early stages who actually do all the commercial side and decide on the vision and what should we build. But in a bigger enterprise, that's not possible anymore. So 
we kind of need to have people that are deep down in the technical stuff of the product, but also people who think of the product marketing strategy, positioning, all those things. So I mean, I would say that it, it makes the remit of the teams broader. Mm. So, so looking at your organization or looking at Relics, how many people are on the product side that is like product managers, product marketing or other roles compared to the engineering side? What is the ratio there? Yeah, if I look at top down first, so we have 1700 people in total out of which closer to 600 are in R&D, so product and engineering. Okay. And the engineering side is closer to 400 and product is 200. But out of that 200, roughly maybe one third is what you would call product managers, product owners, and then the rest is different roles, product marketing, strategy, design, data science, solution architects, and all a host of other roles. So I know when you talked at the CESIS 2022, I understand that, I mean, you're not doing like daily releases. You, you release quite, you know, in, in big cycles. So, so does that also affect how you work with the teams or are you still working with fast sprints like two, three weeks or, or do you work with like a um, longer uh, cycle in your development teams? Yeah, the actual work depends a bit on teams and products, but the actual work is in sprints, but, but we then release roughly maybe four or five times a year, even a bit less with some products. And okay. we want to do it a bit more often. There are some things that we can do internally to make it more often, but in the end, it's it's the fact that customers don't want to upgrade very often, even if the upgrade is such is fairly pain, painless, but it's just it's business critical for them. Every change is a risk. So especially the bigger end of customers, they first of all never want to take a fresh release. They want to see it being trialed with other customers for say six months, and then they maybe take it once a year or something like that. So it, it definitely uh, that that then has a big impact on how we operate because and. It, it's even a bit bit boring for some of the product folks because if you do something today and you even kind of the code freezes there, we release it before you actually see results from many customers. It could be a year, if not more. Yeah. How do you keep them motivated in, in such a situation? Because it, it's always nice to get things out there and get the feedback for the customer and so on. Kind of you see results from customers, but it just there's a bit bigger lag. So maybe you, I mean, you don't see what you did today. You don't see the results tomorrow, but you see the results of what you did some time ago now. So, I mean, there's still constant feedback on what customers are doing. All right. They just come a bit more behind than maybe in some kind of B2C companies where you can actually release like multiple times per day. Right. So, Tommy, here's a question from uh, me as a commercial guy, uh, and maybe I missed something here, but... uh, does that mean because you said something some customers don't want to upgrade or patch up and so on and they want to see how some of the smaller ones do so is this some kind of a single tenant setup where each one can decide when they take the upgrades so you have to manage them separately somehow all these 400 customers yes yes that's exactly the case so even with some of our products we're more in the multi-tenant world but even with those products we we're looking to make it possible for the customers to have at least a bit of leeway when they upgrade maybe not as much as with single tenancy but it is it is not feasible to say to 10 
10 plus billion retailers that you all upgrade tonight. Right. There will be nine of them that have some issues doing it this week. Mm, okay. So, is, and, and you, you, you might know this or not know this, but is this specific for relics or anybody selling business critical solutions into these 10 plus billion enterprise? That's just the name of the game. They have to have separate instances. That definitely has been the name of the game. If you think of the reputation of big ERPs and how difficult it is to upgrade something like that used to be a very big pain to do that. I think that is changing. Everything is going to cloud, even the products that were not on the front front line of cloudifying themselves. So I think there might be gradual change, but I still think it's it's going to be a bit different than what it is in mm. with Facebook or that sort of products. Is there other aspects of delivering this business critical nature to, to these uh, huge companies that um, that you need to think about? I think that's the biggest one in terms of the business criticality so that we need to do our work well, we need to have good quality and we still can't dictate when they want to upgrade because for instance Christmas in, in retail is, is already ongoing so Q4 is something that not a lot of retailers want to upgrade or do touch anything during that period. So that's definitely a big one. Maybe the other, other, which is not just linked to that business criticality, but more in general that we're working with the huge companies who know how to buy software that they will have more strict requirements than what you would maybe as an idealistic product person like to have. So you need to make in the sales spaces, sometimes some commitments because they are buying something that needs to operate in that business critical environment and they can't change everything just because of the software doesn't support it. So they, they at least often push us to then develop stuff. Right. I have another question related to this then. So how much pressure is put on, on the product and engineering team to actually support these customers when they're live. So is there a professional service arm that, that ends up with you or do they sit there and ask for specific features and so on? Like how does that work? Roughly half of the people at Relix are within the professional services side of things. So there's quite a lot of that and customer success, service, delivery, support. They, they are the first and second line of support for any questions the customers might have. But then we, of course, come after that. So difficult questions or new requests, then we need to be, we need to be there to support those. And, and of course, we, we want to be there to talk to, to the customers regularly to understand that what are they seeing as issues and how can we help them? So let, let me ask you this. I, I'm a 10 billion plus retailer and, and I come to, to your team and say like, hey, Tommy and guys, I need this specific integration or function. Like I ask you to build something specifically for me, something customized that nobody else has asked for so far. Are you going to build it or are you going to tell me like, no, maybe we'll have it as a general product in the next release? Or you're thinking wrong, you should do it this way instead. We'll of course look at what are they after, but there is no way we can just say that, of course, we'll do it. I think the trick is that let's make sure that customers want the right things and we then build those things when, when they come to us with those requests. So that, that is kind of win-win that we know that this is going to be important for everybody and now we have a customer who's willing to work with us on that. And if they want something that we see no broader value in, then, then we should do it. That, that, that's 
for sure the case. But the timing-wise, we, we sometimes need to adapt to such requests. Right. Are you tired of communicating with prospects through PDFs and slide decks that get lost in long email threads? Get Accept's digital sales firm empowers revenue teams to increase their win rate by engaging and understanding buyers from opportunity to site deal. A microsite easily shareable to all stakeholders by a link. We can share sales content and quotes and communicate to get the contract signed. A collaborative buyer experience that wins the deal. We call it a digital sales firm. All right, but uh, I mean, one thing you already mentioned it a little bit that that is special here that um, you know the the person that sits and actually uses the solution on a daily basis is very far from the one that you are selling to and that are purchasing this solution. So. How how do you manage that to stay close to the users? Yeah, that's a really big question. In a way, you have, well, let's say a bigger retailer, the typical setup is that you have tens, if not 100 plus end users, then you have a host of super users, and then you have a lot of other roles like IT development people, and then the sort of various layers of the decision making makers. So I think that the thing is to stay close to all of those, and then it's a bit of balancing act. That what do you, what do you do, and who do you listen most? And because we are in automation, then I would say that often, often we kind of need to understand what the higher ups are looking to do. So, I mean, users might want more features to, for them to do more stuff, but the management might, might want actually less users, more automation. But I mean, you must have thousands and thousands of end users, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And do you have some process of uh, collecting feedback from them, or, or how do you work with you know getting feedback for, from your customers or your sort of users at, at the customer side? We have a couple of channels where we can just collect insights and feedback, but then of course we do not so much about quantity, but also quality. We do user research and we talk to the various different stakeholders at our customers to. To really understand that, what are they looking to do with with the end users? The challenge is that the company might have restricted what they can do with Relax, and what they're asking for is something that is completely possible already. But the higher ups just don't want the users to do that. All right. Is there other things that you see? I mean, again, comparing yourself with with a SaaS company that works mostly with. SMBs that that is a different from how you operate sort of things on the product side. I think with SMBs it's also a question that what sort of product you have. I think that, that plays a big role whether it's very business critical and big in terms of the business or not. But but what one thing that comes from big customers is that they know they're big. They they know they have purchasing power and negotiation power and they have professional teams to especially in the sales space they have professional procurement teams. Dealing, dealing with us, so that that has a big impact, of course. All right. So there are dis- different aspects here. One, one is sort of on the scale if it's business critical or if it's uh, nice to have something that, I mean, if it goes down for, for a few hours, it, it's not, you know, a catastrophe. Yeah. And on the other end, it's, you know, working with many small customers that don't have that big saying compared to have these billion dollar revenue customers that can come in and have you know a lot of demands on you as an organization so and you are sort of in the extreme on two of those uh, 
yeah, sort of coordinates, you could say, or, or would you agree on that? Yeah, but I think that's exactly the, the case. And if you think that you'd you'd be our size of company, but but sell a bit smaller software, that would mean that you have thousands or tens of tens of thousands of customers. So the role of individual customers would be completely different. So 400 is still not a lot, and especially on the bigger end, of course, every single big big customer is extremely meaningful to us. Whereas if you would have 10,000 small customers, it's pretty close then to B2C almost. One thing that you talked about more in detail when you spoke at Cessius 2022 was about being a multi-product company. And I know that you are also doing acquisitions. So uh, could you just say a few things about that as well and how that impacts you as a product team? Yeah, I think with any growing company, and especially once you start to have investors on board and so on, you, you need to look pretty far into the future to make sure that the the total addressable market is there for your growth for the next 10 plus years, not just for the next few years. And that, that then often leads into wanting to grow that market and build, build new products to a new, new type of use cases or new type of customers or, or something like that. So we've been doing quite a lot of that. And it's, it's an interesting journey in many ways because that leads into a situation that you have very different products in your portfolio. Some are really mature and that those 10 plus billion retailers use in volume. And then some are much more in a startup phase where we have five, 10 customers and we're looking to get the next five and iterate much more rapidly on, on the product market fit than what to do next. So it, it calls for quite different people, processes, and also customers. And you, you cannot go to the biggest ones with something that is fully immature. They want they won't want it or we don't want them to want it because it's, it's a bit risky. So you kind of need to have different processes and different customers for. Yeah. But I guess yours, you're such a big organization so you can manage these different processes and different teams and different customers. I mean, it would be harder for a smaller company to, to do both things at the same time, right? Yeah. I, I think you're right. <laughs> then again, of course, it's not, only easy to have a big corporation or big organization. It, it comes with its challenges too when you have like close to 2,000 people globally spread out. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And I, uh, I can imagine it's a big change. I mean, comparing to when you were in the UK as a one-man show doing like three or four different things uh, yourself and now you're the head of 200 people organization. It uh, must have been quite a journey and... Um, and so uh, for you these years. Yeah, it's been, I think that's been the nicest thing that it's, it's constant learning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So l listening to this, Tommy, I think it's, it's very interesting. And one thing that strikes me, like if that I'm curious to, to understand how you guys solve it and other big enterprises like yourself. It's one thing if I sell an SMB solution where the, the user is the marketeer and the economic buyer is also the marketeer. So it's one and the same person. That makes it easy for me to pilot and test new products. It's, it's this one person I need to get the feedback from. But as you described it here, like you have your users, you have the economic buyers, you, you have a bunch of people like that are involved that have an interest and stake in this. How does a piloting and conceptualizing new products look to get that feedback in from these big customers where there's so many stakeholders? Yeah, that is really something that it's not particularly easy with, with, with larger customers and 
larger organizations because it, you, you might find that one person that who would say that yeah that sounds really cool let's do something but it's probably other people who decide on that one person's priorities and even if we kind of go in that we want to pilot very lightly and the, the cost is minimal if anything and so on it's still a lot of effort for them and they're constantly looking to prioritize that where do they put their kind of limited capacity to do things so it is a lot of work what, what we're looking to do more and more is to, to have a group of customers that are more agile and quick in nature and like to do new things and like to move quickly so that we can then kind of have a direct phone line that with these companies we can try new stuff out and mature and iterate that stuff and then then go to the other customers once we've done that right so it's identifying those champions and ambassador customers that are willing to spend the time and take maybe sometimes a little bit of a risk to to help you guys figure out the next big thing it is interesting to kind of look back from my time in uk and from the first customers we've had in each market but also the first people we've hired in each market it's a bit same thing that if you are going to be the first employee of a company or or even a kind of certain country or if you're going to be the first customer of that company in that country it calls for a bit different character or personality than those who then join when there's hundreds of customers or thousands of people already. Yeah. So that's very much visible in both the people who've been with us a long time, but also those first early customers. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Like there's probably a lot of listeners here that are, you know, uh, CPOs, CTOs in one way or another representing a product and engineering team that maybe today are serving a smaller segment but are planning to move into these enterprise sales like what would your advice be to them like what do they need to figure out internally from a product perspective and product organization perspective before they take on these big giants i think for us it was always a a journey not one of change and i think that's how it likely will be you might get lucky and you might get one huge customer on top of the the smaller ones but most likely you grow kind of bit by bit because let's say you serve companies that have revenue on in the 10 10 million tens of millions then you don't have credibility to sell into the 1 billion plus companies at that stage so you need to grow that credibility so in i think that the good thing is that it's going to be like that it won't happen at once but it will happen over time and what we definitely see as, as you then grow is that you need to put more and more focus on things like scalability and like something that you could easily fix for one customer whatever way even in a very hacky way then if you have 100 that's not going to be applicable so as the volume grows as the size grows so needs the kind of quality level and maturity needs to grow all right. So, so what is in the future for Relics and for you here? Yeah, I was just thinking that I've been here 16 or so years and I don't see any reason why I wouldn't be here for the next 16 years. It's, <laughs> I mean, being in a growth company, I think that's extremely nice because then you never stop learning or, or if you stop learning, then you have problems. I mean, our plan is to continue on this path. We have good, uh, our, our CEO likes to say that this has been a good start <laughs> and now the work starts. So we, we definitely have growth ambitions. We are very early stages still with many of our products that we want to grow as big as the, the bigger ones. In many of the markets, we have a good start, but like I said, in, in US, it's been a really good start for a European company, but it's still like 
very, very early in the bigger picture. So which is going to continue growing. And that probably means that we're going to continue growing organically, expanding to a bit new kind of verticals, like we work in increasingly more with the manufacturers, and then we're going to expand the product portfolio as well. So all those things will will continue. Interesting. So t t tell me, I'm curious, like you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you're at 130 million euros in ARR. Have you ever discussed when you break the 1 billion mark? There, there's all sorts of predictions, of course, <laughs> which, which, which we need to have for, for planning purposes, but that's not like, that's, that's not a public forecast. We, we look to continue to grow with this rapid 30 to 50% growth. Yeah, you have high ambitions for sure. We, we like that, uh, uh, especially for a Nordic company that wants to take over the world, that, that uh, we sympathize with that. Um, but but if is there anything particular that you are looking for right now for yourself or your organization? I guess as always, we're hiring quite a lot in in many markets, in many roles, in in my teams and other teams. That that's for sure. I would say the main focus for us and what we're looking to do more and more is to kind of really still double down on U.S. growth. And also the the other big thing for us is that we have nice starting with some 10, 10, 20 Nordic consumer packaged goods manufacturers, but, but that's, that's a big thing for us to get out of retail alone. Okay. So Tommy, is there anything particular that uh, you are looking for right now? Well, as always, and I think that's the case with most of your visitors here, that we're hiring, we're growing, we're looking to hire in, in, in many different roles in my, my product teams, engineers. In, in multiple locations, we now have an office in Lisbon as well for the tech tech side of things. And then the big focus is, is US for us. So we continue to double down on that growth that we've already built over over there. Okay. A lot of opportunities there. For all golfers, there is a, a spot in Lisbon. So, so we are at the end of the hour. Uh, it was great having you here, Tommy. And um, yeah. We'll see you around and thank you also for contributing with um, articles uh, uh, for the website as well so we can follow your thought leadership. Thanks both. Extremely nice to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Tommy. Daniel, I'm curious to hear what are your takeaways from this episode? Uh, I, I bet you are. I bet you are. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is, you know, I'm from the commercial side. It's always interesting for me to dip my toes on the product side. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me here was, and people might underestimate that, if you're selling an SMB solution, you might be selling to the user, which also happens to sit on the budget. So it's like one and the same person or the circle is smaller. But when you're selling like an enterprise type of a setup like this to a large company, he mentioned somewhere, the, you know, 10 plus billion type of businesses, there's so many different stakeholders and the user is so far away from the economic buyer and you need to somehow please them both and that affects how you build product you know i thought that was an interesting perspective to see like here's a big change how do you tackle that and how does that affect you internally um i i don't have the answer for that but i, I thought it was an, an interesting insight that clearly is very different from what some of the other companies are used to so that, that's my big takeaway. Uh, what about you, Thomas? What's your big takeaway here? I think it's just about understanding what, um, if you sell this kind of product, how that affects your organization. Because you will have a high complexity, you will have a business critical solution, 
that will mean that you can't deploy as often. It will mean that you will have a big professional service operation. And uh, you need to have a team that also are satisfied with you know, the, the big lead time. You, you can go, you can work on a solution and then it will be launched maybe six months later or eight months later. And uh, we didn't get deep into it, but, but I think you need to find a way of celebrating those things that you do. And yeah, you have a lag time, right? You, you will always come out with new things, but there will be a lag maybe <laughs> around six months before before it, it really hits the customer. But uh, yeah, it's another way of working. But what I think is so refreshing and with the whole Relic story, I, I mean, in the beginning, the founders did everything. You know, you know, Tommy is almost right out of school, was sent to the UK and just, you know, figure it out. Um, and uh, did everything you know himself on the ground there and being able to start from that point and and now being you know the the head of 200 people product organization i think that's fantastic and and also the ambition that they have at relics to, to really be you know the number one in the world and uh, being just in the beginning of the journey i, I think that's very ex- inspiring to hear and uh, go relics definitely the Finns have figured something out like apparently you put engineers to do sales in new markets yeah that is the way to go okay so uh, what else daniel do we have in front of us here well uh, we're working a lot with our networks as uh, you guys probably know we have a ceo network and we also have what we call executive networks executive network is if you're vp level or higher of an organization that has two million euros in arr you are now officially welcome to apply. We're putting those groups together and the first cohort starts in January. So if you are keen to exchange ideas to learn from your peers in the same discipline like you, now is the time to sign up and you can do that via the sasnordic.com website. And if you go to community, you see a drop-down list there of the different networks that you can join and partake in. So that's one of the big things we work on. And another big thing that we've also uh, hopefully you've seen it, is that we're planning for SASIUS 2023. What can you tell us about that, Thomas? Yeah, so SASIUS 2023 will be an in-person two-day event or almost a three-day event, uh, considering all the side events on, on the day before. Down in Malmö, Sweden, uh, we will be around... We, ha- we need to cap it at 1,200 attendees. It's going to be very content-driven. We are looking at providing you with great content, both keynote speakers, and we're going to have a number of different um, tracks. Uh, like last year, we're going to have, uh, or this year, we're going to have a product track as well. So if you're interested in product, you will also get your piece of the cake. And uh, well, what else? It's a community event. We're gonna, you know, design it so we have a lot of time getting together, get to know each other, exchange experiences, you know, and just have fun together as well. Yeah, and where do where do people that want to buy tickets is so lock in their seats? Where do they go, Thomas? And also, if there is people and companies that want to help us, that want to be part of the event, there's some sponsorship and partnership alternatives. How do they reach out? Yeah, exactly. So if you want to learn more about the event, you head over to sassiest2023.com. And if you want to contact us, if you have ideas on speakers or want to be a partner at the event, you can reach out to us at contact at sassnordic.com. Or if you want to ping us on LinkedIn or or if you find us somewhere else, uh, yeah, feel free to do it. 
and uh, really happy that you spent your time listening to the episode today and if you want you can head over to spotify or itunes and give us a five star review that would mean a lot to us and um, yeah besides that hope to see you around soon glad to have you within the community and uh, what do you say daniel last words thank you for supporting us we love building this together with you guys and we'll see you around in in all the other channels bye